Hey there, SLP. You are listening to this podcast, so I know that you love to listen to podcasts. And if that is the case, then I know that you are going to love my secret private podcast, Secondary Secrets for SLPs. It's six short episodes that will have you walking away feeling refreshed and inspired and ready to take on those challenging secondary speech students. So if you work with grades four through 12 and are in a planning rut or wanting some fresh new ideas to keep your students motivated, make sure you head to speechtimefun.com slash secondary secrets. You are not going to find this podcast in your iTunes podcast search browser. You can only get access by going to that link. So head to it now. It is six short episodes that you can listen to it in under an hour, like totally Netflix binge-worthy. I made this just for you, and I know you are going to love it. SLPs have been telling me already that it has changed their way for working with their older speech students. So head on over, again, to speechtimefund.com slash secondarysecrets, or use the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Now let's head on to this week's episode of SLP Coffee Talk. You are listening to SLP Coffee Talk. I am your host, Hallie Sherman, and I am a licensed speech-language pathologist who is in the trenches working full-time in a public school in New York. I am the author of the blog and Teachers Pay Teachers store, Speech Time Fun, where I love helping other SLPs conquer the overwhelm and get back hours spent on prepping activities. I am here to help you be the best SLP you can be and have fun while doing it. Just like your morning cup of coffee, this podcast is just what you need to start the day or week. Let's jump into today's Coffee Talk. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. Today, I have another literacy-based guru here, Corey Pollard from Ascend Learning. And tell everyone, who are you and your SLP journey into awesomeness? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I have a degree in clinical psychology. And I know, right? But I feel like we've, you know, I've been adopted by SLPs because it's just this really interesting kind of connection of the work that we do. And so my background is actually working in clinical science and research. So worked at Johns Hopkins. I've worked at Children's Hospital Colorado, the University of Denver. And during my time there, was able to do a lot of work in neuropsychology. And as I progressed, I found this love for audiology, speech, and learning, and just the connection that happens there. And so during my time at Children's Hospital Colorado, I actually got an opportunity to work in the language and literacy unit. And so we did a lot of co-working together as a team unit, trying to figure out how do we best support students with language-based learning disabilities because there's so much overlap between what we're seeing and really how we're working with our students. But unfortunately, I think, you know, we notice this in the schools and we notice this in clinical settings that we sort of feel like we're on our own path a little bit. And we're sort of like, I don't know if this is, you know, my realm or if this is your realm. And really what we started to realize was, oh my gosh, it's both. It's both of our realms. And so 
as we were able to start working together, we were able to really draw knowledge from one another to figure out, oh my gosh, we can serve these students so much better when we are collaborating and figuring out really the language piece of it and the learning piece of it together. And so that's really where my journey brought me into the SLP world. And so that's out. amazing. And I, and I knew that. And I totally forgot as well, because you do such amazing work with our language delayed students and with reading and all the things that I'm always talking about is how it's not them versus us. It, it's we all need to work together for this common goal. So when did you start your private practice and when did you start branching out and teaching more about your ways of educating these students? Yeah, absolutely. So about five years ago, I started the private practice. And really, it was because I felt like this multidisciplinary approach was something that I wanted to be able to dig deeper into. I wanted to be able to just continue to serve students in a way that felt really right for me. And I really wanted to be able to start working with schools as well and being able to reach out and help multidisciplinary teams there as well, your teachers and your speech language pathologists in working together. And so we started Ascend Learning and Educational Consulting really just as a private practice that was meant to support students with learning disabilities, but it very quickly grew into more of a training organization where we do a lot of work directly with schools as well, helping at the tier one, so the general education classroom level, but also really as we start to look at that intervention and then that special education or that tier three, where we start having more of those multidisciplinary teams working together. And so really figuring out how does that work when you're pulling all of those different professions together? And it's been amazing to get to kind of share some of that knowledge across the board. I love it. And everyone listening is probably going, okay, so what is this approach? What did you find was the common theme and challenge for a lot of these students? Yeah, that's a really great question because I think when I got my original training, it was in Orton Gillingham in structured literacy before it was really called structured literacy. And what I realized was it was very single focused and it felt like we were really focusing a lot on phonics. But as we started having those more multidisciplinary approaches, we started to see, oh my goodness, there's this whole other side that we're completely missing. And so I went to a lot of different conferences and things like this, and I kept hearing about this literacy processing triangle. And really this literacy processing triangle, if you think about it, it is a triangle. And what we're doing is we're pulling together orthography. So visual print. What am I seeing? What am I actually seeing? These letters that I'm seeing. Then we have the phonology side. So that sound structure of our language and how are those sounds coming together and how are students being able to blend those for reading and segment those for spelling. And then the semantics piece at the top of the triangle, which is completely your world, but really thinking about that vocabulary and the sentence structure and syntax and all of that. And I think what I started realizing was that our students with language-based learning disabilities, so often we were focused on that phonics piece, which is connecting the bottom two bases of that triangle. It's connecting that orthography, that visual print and the phonology, the sound structure, but but it was completely leaving out semantics, which is where our relationships started to come in so helpful. And it was sort of leaving out a lot of phonology as well, just because, again, felt like, oh, that's a speech language pathologist job. I shouldn't touch that. But because it's so connected and that's the neural process that has to come together for reading, you can't 
help one without also working on the others or you're leaving so many students behind. And I think that's what I started mm-hmm. to see. You know, we'd have these kids who also had these language-based difficulties outside of the dyslexia. We were just not addressing any of that. I was like, well, that's, that's not my thing. I don't know. And they weren't maintaining the growth. They weren't maintaining the knowledge they were getting in phonics because they had no vocabulary to support it. So it just, it didn't make sense without pulling in the knowledge of what are speech language pathologists doing? And ultimately, I've kind of jumped to this side of, I feel like speech language pathologists should be running this whole thing. Um, not just guys, we put on your crown right now. Okay, guys, you're running the show around here. <laughs> I say that is because I think it's, hard and it's not you know as we have a background in reading and reading science we don't learn about the language piece at all and i think you go to school for many years to learn about language and how language is building and the structure and how students really start to put those pieces together and i think it's so much easier for a speech language pathologist to take over that orthographic mapping or that visual letters and start to pair that into the instruction that you're already doing it's much harder for those of us who don't have a language background to learn everything you've learned as part of your degree. And the flip side, we don't have the literacy background. A lot of us, I mean, some schools have some electives and things like that, especially when it comes to the older ones and like really comprehension. But after we take out the vocabulary piece, a lot of us don't feel comfortable with the sound letter correlation and some of the phonological awareness kind of stuff because that was reading. That wasn't us. Yeah, so, and, and it is us. And it is, we ha- I love that approach that it's not one or the other. It's well, we have to look at the big picture to really, truly help our students. And I love that you're starting with a tier one, helping the teachers recognize that, pick up on some red flags. What are some strategies that you're giving to the teachers? Yeah. So a lot of it is just as early recognition as possible. And so, like you said, it's starting to look for some of those red flags. And so depending on the grade level, we're really starting to think about what are those red flags. And it looks different depending on what grade level that you're working with. So when you're working with younger students, you're looking at kindergarten, you're really looking more at that phonological awareness and what their rhyming ability look like. And what do those kind of sound letter correspondence pieces look like? Do they know their alphabet? Do they know those types of things? But as you start getting into the upper grades, when you're starting to think about middle school, when you're starting to think about high school, those students are often being lost because it feels like, well, it's too late for them. Like they should have learned that in elementary. And if they don't have it now, oh, well. And so what we start to say is when you start to see some of these students in middle school and high school who are showing up with comprehension deficits or who are showing up with difficulty spelling, their spelling is atrocious or their writing just doesn't look the way that you would expect given what they're providing for you orally in their oral language those are going to be red flags. And so we'll start to talk with teachers about starting to look at and flag some of their students' writing and their students who are struggling with comprehension because it could be that they're just struggling with comprehension and that exists absolutely. But oftentimes that comprehension struggle also comes back to, well, they're not decoding effectively. They don't have effective literacy skills. And so when you start to put those higher level skills, they just just can't support it. And just speaking to teachers myself, after they get to a certain grade level, they don't have time in their curriculum to support guided reading and Wilson or whatever, some sort of level literacy, whatever kind of approach that they're working with the younger grades. So they're just given a grade level novel and they're, they're basically being told like, you know, you failed, like you can't do it. Meanwhile, 
they're not getting the support to get to the comprehension because they don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the sound that are core. They're just falling further and further behind. So I love it that you pivoted into the older students because it's very clear what to do with the younger ones. And a lot of the younger teachers are accustomed to handling some of those challenging with decoding and knowing whether it's decoding or comprehension or vocabulary. When are older ones that are still struggling, what advice would you give to an SLP who wants to support the student because they do work with them outside of the classroom and they have that ability to do small group support, what advice would you give them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think one of the biggest things is just being aware of where their strengths and weaknesses are. So one of the things that we advocate all the time is especially for those students who are at middle school, at high school level, really just taking a look at their scores. So taking a look at where they're at. And so we like to do screenings for students to see, okay, let's see where your phonological awareness is. Let's see where your sound symbol correspondence is. Let's see where that vocabulary and comprehension are. Because I think sometimes what happens is we're so busy trying to, you know, kind of solve the highest level of need, which is usually that comprehension, because they have to have comprehension in order to be successful at that secondary, that middle school and high school level. Again, that we forget that there are those underlying skills. And so for an SLP, one of the biggest things that would create just the most support is having a quick screening so that you can say, look, we can support these comprehension skills. We can support this vocabulary. However, it's always going to fall back on how effectively are they decoding? Because if they just can't sound out 90% of the words that they're reading, no matter how great their comprehension strategies are, they're not going to be successful. And so we just need to have data to be able to say, this is where our students are at, because many of them, you know, we've worked at high schools as well. And we've got many of the students who really you've got two big buckets. One of your big buckets is students who decode effectively, but just don't have those comprehension skills. And then your other bucket is students who typically don't have either at that point, because by the time they're in middle school, by the time they're in high school, if their decoding is ineffective, their comprehension is usually dropping every single year, which is why it's so important that we catch it in kinder first, second, because at that point, those students can still really close that gap and learn those comprehension strategies so that when they get to middle school and high school, they're successful. But by the time we get to middle school, high school, if we don't have that decoding really shored up, you will start to see comprehension difficulties at that point. The one big challenge when we're working with older students is some of those phonological awareness activities seem babyish. So what advice would you give to someone who's like this? You have a student who's going, are we really like doing ABCs here? Like what advice or activities or suggestions would you give? That is such a great question. I love that. I think we struggled with that in the beginning, too, where it felt like, like you said, all of the assessments that you have are how many syllables do you hear in caterpillar? How many sounds do you hear in cat? How many sounds do you hear in dog? And yes, that feels to a middle school, to a high school student, demeaning sometimes too, because they already recognize that they're struggling. And then when they're being assessed, they feel like, oh my gosh. And so one of the things that we work to do is really think about what are the content areas that students need to be focusing on at middle school, at high school level. And as we're thinking about that content, then we can start to do phonological awareness activities that specifically relate back to the content areas. So, for example, instead of saying how many syllables in Caterpillar, why don't we ask them how many syllables in ecosystem? 
how many sounds in, you know, some of these more advanced words, cell, cellular, and you can mitochondria, whatever. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You can start to think about what are the content areas that they're expected to know where they can still make that connection. And I think that's been the biggest issue with phonics based instruction is that what happens is they're not necessarily graduating it to meet the needs of these higher level students. And so they're not applying it because they don't see the connection. But if you can start with some of those more advanced words and things like that, that's where you can get them connected in where it doesn't feel babyish. And it, it just never comes off that way. And I just talk with my students all the time about, hey, this is our literacy processing triangle. This is the neural connection of how our brain works. We got to figure out where we're at in each of these points. And it's really all about I can sell it to your students, too. You <laughs> make it sound really cool that you're doing some yeah. science work with them. Exactly. And also if they feel like, hey, like having that conversation, do you ever feel sometimes that you're like behind the rest of your friends or unable to catch up? Like we're going to do some activities here to just try to help you not be so far behind and to build that confidence and show them. So I just tell them why that you're working on it. I love it. Other than syllables, what are some other phonological awareness kind of stuff can people be addressing? Yeah, so we usually look at a 10-part drill, and that 10-part drill really works its way up from really that kind of basic level of rhyming all the way up to phonemic manipulation. So change the first sound, delete the last sound, even things as high as Pig Latin. I know Pig Latin's kind of fun, but that's a really high phonological awareness activity because you're requiring students delete and add and manipulate, and so some of those can be really fun. But really, when we think about that 10-part drill, we're also thinking about what are the phonological awareness skills that underlie reading? So what are the skills that are going to help them make sure they can blend sounds together and blend syllables together to read effectively? And then on the flip side, what are the phonological awareness skills that are going to help support with encoding? And so that spelling piece, so that's going to be more of that segmenting and that auditory discrimination and things like that. And so we have a freebie that we're going to give out to that has that 10-part drill. Uh, thank you. It'll be in the show notes, guys. So don't get into any car accidents. When you get to work or wherever you're going, that's when you go to the show notes. So it's a download, guys. <laughs> thank you. That is awesome. I know that'll be super, super helpful. I know I'm going to use it with my students. I know many others. I actually had another guest on the show who mentioned the pig Latin as well. And I think it's so, it's so fun. I was actually trying it out with my own children at home, like my daughter, who's seven now. And she's like, mommy, what are you saying? <laughs> I have the hardest time with it. Personally, I have, a, I do not process. I'm a, I feel like I process visual information, but I'm like trying to listen. I'm like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Let me think about it. Give me a second here. But I, but I think the good thing about that is that it gives them confidence that this isn't necessarily something everybody else can do. And this isn't something I should have learned when I was in kindergarten. This is something we're all trying to work through together. And it's, fun. And so my middle school and high school students have enjoyed it because they're like, oh, I'm going to have conversations with my friends that my parents don't understand. I'm like, oh, that depends on how old your parents are. Like, <laughs> like they might know they're glad. <laughs> <laughs> they might have forgot what it was called, but it's going to bring back some memories for them. <laughs> so, so true. I love it. What are some other go-to activities that you like to use with your older students when you're working on this structural literacy framework with them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, again, it really comes back to using those words that they're coming up to in the content area. So if you're already working on tier two or maybe even tier three vocabulary words with some of these students who are at this higher grade level, starting to work on, okay, great, let's take a look at this word. 
let's go ahead and do that. Let's break it down first into syllables, then into sounds. Then let's start pairing those sounds that we're hearing to their actual letter correspondence. And that's where you can start to see it. And it doesn't take, you know, I think a lot of times we're thinking, oh my gosh, I think we overthink it. We overthink literacy. And it's really just about pairing those letter pictures that you see to the sound. So once you've helped a student break that word down into syllables, into sounds, then just quite literally pairing that up with here are the patterns that you're going to see so that they can start to make that connection. Now, if you are you know, fully responsible for this student's literacy ability as well, there are definitely really solid scope and sequence that you can follow to make sure that they have all of those patterns. But if you're working in a setting where somebody else is supporting some of that or you've alerted somebody else to, hey, we need some, some structured systematic literacy here, I'm going to continue working on the vocabulary, the comprehension in those pieces. That's enough. It's just saying, hey, maybe you haven't learned this pattern yet, but you're going to start to see it. And the more that you start to see it, the more you're going to be able to do that effectively, independently, or once that comes up in a scope and sequence. Now, if you are in a private practice or if you are an SLP who is responsible for really providing all of that structured literacy, then yes, there's definitely a scope and sequence that really follows the different syllable types so that you can start to expect what sound patterns are you hearing and what letter patterns make each of those sounds. And it's not complicated. It's really just following a first teach those syllables, you know, that's really going to be your consonants and short vowels. Then teach magic E. And so it's, I think a lot of times we just overcomplicate it. We make it feel like it's harder than it is. And it's really just the same way that you would teach the letters of the alphabet. You're teaching the letters and the letter patterns that move into vowel teams and some of those more complex sound patterns. And so, again, it's just about finding a scope and sequence that works for that. But like you said, you think about Wilson and things like that. And you're like, how do I tie all of this in? I think it's so important that we're really focusing on that vocabulary that students are experiencing in the classroom. So true. Don't reinvent any wheels. And this could be totally incorporated with your other speech goals and activities. Like you could be working on a whole main idea lesson or whatever you're working on. And just in the few seconds as you're handing out papers, tapping into, hey, you know, let's tap into some syllables as always see some words as you're previewing the vocabulary of a text before you read it. It doesn't need to be the entire session drilling on this kind of stuff. You should be doing it consistently always. Absolutely. Absolutely. And things, you know, where we were even talking about, you know, oh, mitochondria or something like that. Oh, this is a really interesting word. We have C-H-O-N, con, you know, that's the pattern that's saying con, isn't that interesting? And just starting to pull those letters. So even as simple as just writing it on your whiteboard or writing it down on sticky notes, on a piece of paper to just show them that connection to what they're hearing, what they're learning about and focusing on these are the letter patterns that are making those sounds. They can truly be that easy. One fun thing I always tell my audience is that how we always need to think about they probably were taught these things and it didn't stick. We need to teach them differently. So if the teachers are or should be doing these approaches early on, what advice would you give to someone saying, well, it didn't stick. Now what? Yeah, a lot of times it's truly just that repetition. And a lot of times, especially as students are getting older, they just weren't ready for it then. And so oftentimes, if we think about those students who are really struggling 
kinder, first, second, you know, as they were struggling through elementary school, there were so many things that weren't clicking that it was very hard for them to pull on to some of those patterns and some of that instruction that may have been happening at that time, that they can be more ready for it and more open to it at those older grade levels. And so I would say it's just repetition. And part of that repetition is either they just needed to hear it again, or they're now ready because they've kind of moved past some of those more foundational skills and they're ready for those. They're just behind some of their peers in the sense of when they're ready for that. So, so true. I love that. I love that approach that you have to not think they couldn't do it then. So how could they do it now? It's maybe now they're ready. They've, they've been working with an SLP for how many years? Now they might be ready to tackle some of these things. I love that. I love that mindset approach. Yeah, they get there. And I think that's something too, you know, when we think about comprehension and things like that, is that a lot of the students, middle school and high school, it's, it's not that their elementary wasn't teaching them comprehension skills. It's just that many of them were struggling so much maybe with decoding or sounding the words out and all the anxiety that went along with all of that, that they're sitting in class thinking, please don't call on me, please don't call on me. But as they start to become more confident in that ability, then they're ready for some of these other skills. So I think it's just important to realize that, yeah, we're just ready at different times. And yeah, keep- I love it. Love it. Love it. Do you have a favorite aha moment of a student that you were working with, especially maybe an older one who finally got that light bulb went on? Do you have a favorite story like that? I do. And sometimes it's one of these things, too, where you realize that sometimes you just sort of take for granted what students do know and you forget about how important explicit instruction is. I was working with a eighth grade student, actually, and we're working through some of the basics. And so I just told him, hey, you know what, we're just going to cruise through this, but we're just going to make sure we've got the foundation here. And we were literally talking about consonants and vowels. We've got two types of letters. We've got consonants and we've got vowels. Thinking, you know, we're just going to categorize those out. We've got letters, we've got consonants, we've got vowels. And he asked me, okay, but what about all the others? It's like, I don't, what do you mean? That, that's what we have. So when we have letters, we can either break them into consonants or vowels. Now we can stick those vowels together. We can stick those consonants together. We can stick things together in all kinds of different ways, but that's literally it. And that was a light bulb moment for him. And so I think in turn, in that time, what I started to realize was, wow, I for so long have just assumed some of those things that we said that they learned this earlier. There's no way that we have a student at this age who, and he's bright, he's a gifted student. So there's, there's no question that it's cognitive or anything like that. It just, that never clicked for him. Or maybe that was just assumed that implicitly he picked that up, but because nobody had ever put the main idea is letters. And our details or consonants and short vowels that just never clicked for him. And so I think aha moment for me is just recognizing, wow, some of these things that we feel like, oh, this is babyish or this is going to be demeaning to a student actually wasn't for him. He was thrilled to be like, oh, my gosh, like this blows my mind. This like makes things so much easier. And it's just how we put all of that together. So I think it's really just taking that step back and realizing nothing is too remedial, especially if you can present that in a way that feels appropriate you weren't singing like a raffy song to teach him how to sort like that's something you would do with your preschoolers but like right. you're making it age appropriate materials and resources and truly you are stepping back to what he needed and that's amazing that i bet he probably will remember that forever first of all and also progress so much to the next level of even faster 
it's the thing. It's just showing them like, hey, your brain just, it likely just wasn't explained in this way before. And that's fine. And it's using those same graphic organizers that I know you use in your intervention all the time, but it's literally just creating like, here's your main idea. And it's something as simple, again, as letters. And here's the two letters. Or you can start to do, you know, here's the main idea, syllable types. Okay, well, here are all of the different types. And the more that you can kind of create that type of organization for students, then it doesn't feel babyish because then it's explaining it in a new way and it just clicks for them. Have you ever found any teachers giving you reservations about this approach? Yes. Yes. And I think, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's hard because we all come with different backgrounds and different experiences. And I think for teachers, Oftentimes, they're feeling like many of the students that I have worked with have been successful without all of these other pieces. And absolutely, that's likely the case. However, we do know that structured literacy supports all students. So essentially, what you're grabbing is you're grabbing your tier two students, your tier three students who weren't getting it. And you're also grabbing some of those tier one students who are just compensating so effectively. You have a lot of these gifted students who can hang in there, but they're really not getting it. And so really it's about sort of seeing the unseen. And so when you can start to pull that together for teachers and saying, hey, but if we start taking some data, you'll start to see some of these patterns. You can start taking that data. They'll change their minds or they'll see it. But but yeah, there's definitely pushback. And I think it makes sense too, because especially if you've been doing something for a long time and you feel like that's working or haven't necessarily seen the need, sure. But it's just about making sure that nobody's falling through the cracks. And we know that, you know, 66% of fourth grade students are not reading on grade level. There are certainly students that are falling through. The cracks. And that's just fourth grade. As they get old, that, and, and I think it's, it's getting, it gets bigger. The gap gets wider and wider and wider. And we know, you know, even though after third grade, they're no longer learning to read, they're reading to learn. And that's, I always say sometimes it's job security for us. But at the same point, if we can catch it, and I love it that you mentioned earlier, if we can catch it earlier, especially those of you listening that do work with the younger grades, the more we can help train these teachers and help them show them these red flags, it's not going to get us out of a job later on. I promise. There'll still be enough need for us. But it's so, so true. And, and, and the reason I asked that question before, because we know that a lot of times teachers don't want to listen to the SLPs. They want them like you handle it's your problem. Don't give me more work to do. I don't want to take this data. I have a million other things to do. And we always have to be the bad cops sometimes to say we're all in this together. We have to work together. Yeah. And I always tell educators, I get that all the time. Data, I don't have time for that. And I say it's an upfront payment that is paying you back big time in the long run because you know, what happens is if you don't have the data and you don't catch it, then you're stuck later on trying to figure out why isn't this working? Or you've got data coming back from state assessments and things like that that are showing your students aren't making growth. And, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it's just like you put the upfront investment in and it will pay itself back a million fold. I love it. I love it. Thank you so, so much. This was amazing. I can't wait to go check out this freebie myself. Everyone, make sure you definitely go check out the freebie. It's going to be super, super helpful for your toolbox of resources when you have that student on RTI or even your student on your caseload that you want to do a little bit more. It doesn't have to be so formalized as a goal on the IEP. You can just slip some of these activities in with your other activities just to help support or train other professionals to do it as well. I love it. This is such a team approach. There is no I in team. So Corey, where can people learn more about you and everything you have to offer? Yeah, absolutely. So we're 
pretty much everywhere at Smarter Intervention. So Instagram is a great place to follow. We have all of our shenanigans on Instagram, but otherwise we're also on Facebook, Pinterest, and YouTube, but at Smarter Intervention. Definitely go check them out. They're always constantly sharing tips for work on phonological awareness and that's download or correlation and all that fun stuff. So you can totally get some great nuggets of tips from following them on Instagram. I know I do. And I always end my episodes with a joke. And I figured this one would be appropriate because it's got, got some like phonological stuff in it, kind of. When do astronauts eat at lunchtime? <laughs> I was trying to come up with lunch, lunch, you know, lunch. <laughs> I love it. It's kind of phonological, Aaron. You know, getting I with a little launch lunch. What's the sound that sounds different? Oh, it's and you need to ha- and you need to have the vocabulary of launch and lunch and exactly. and the astronaut vocabulary. You have to. That's why I love jokes. It's a great way to assess. Like if they don't get it, you're like, oh, they don't have the vocabulary for the X, Y, and Z. Teachable moment right there. So thank you, Corey, so much for coming onto the show. Everyone, go check Corey out and everything they have to offer. And until next week, everyone, stay out of trouble. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. It means the world to me that you're tuning in each and every week and getting the jolt of inspiration you need. You can find all of the links and information mentioned in this episode at my website, speechtimefun.com. Don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss any future episodes. And while you're there, It would mean the world to me if you would take a few seconds and leave me an honest review. See you next week with another episode full of fun and inspiration from one SLP to another. Have fun, guys.